This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Good morning. It's so good to see you guys. We are in the dog days of summer. So um, I know we have a lot of people traveling, a lot of people on vacation, a lot of people coming back from vacation, uh, a lot of people back from vacation now needing vacation. Um, some of you have been on those kinds of vacations, so it's, it's good to see you this morning. Um, I know many of you are in summer home groups. You've got uh, three weeks of that left, so stay engaged, stay faithful, stay strong. I know some of the groups have said you're just going to keep going forever. Uh, we're going to figure something out there. Uh, I know many of, of you guys are going at least an extra week to have dinner or do something like that together. We um, are thinking and praying about the future of what it would look like to become a more group-centered, uh, group-centric church where we have uh, semesters of uh, home groups throughout the year, fall semester, uh, spring semester, summer semester, what that might look like. So uh, your feedback this summer so far has been really valuable and helpful. Um, one word of clarification, and then we're going to jump into Acts uh, at a survey level again, looking at Acts 16 and the beginning uh, verses of Acts chapter 17. So if you have your Bible with you, you can go ahead and open uh, those to Acts chapter 16. Um, if you follow along in the app, you can go ahead and open your app there to the sermon notes section at this time. One word of clarification. Uh, two weeks ago, I talked about not liking to be hugged by Jake. That doesn't mean I don't like to be hugged. It means I don't like being hugged by Jake. So uh, don't, don't have a fear to come hug me. I'm going to hug you back unless you're Jake. Um, and then I'm going to hit you. But that's the relationship we've had for years and years and years. And he just irritates me by trying to hug all the time. So that's what that is about. So you don't have to go home and say, boy, Matt does not like physical touch. Um, it's, it's safe to a small degree. So, hey, let's look at, and what I want to do this morning is bring down maybe the level that we've been uh, looking at Acts so far, uh, where we've been watching movements and events. And I want us to, to take a, a closer look at how the gospel comes to individuals and particularly different types of individuals. And what I hope is that through, through a grace-given ability by God, uh, you and I will be able to see ourselves in at least one of these groups of people as we think about how the gospel came to us and how God came to us. Uh, or maybe you're on the fence this morning, or, or maybe you're not even sure why you're here. And you can find yourself in one of these categories of people, and maybe God's calling you this morning, knocking on your heart in a redemptive way this morning. Often we'll find ourselves in, in more than one category, but I want us to look at, at the lives and how God comes to different people in the book of Acts. Let's uh, begin in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, we'll start with verse 13. Verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. 
If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Let me pray for us before we go any further. God, thank you so much that you don't just record movements, God, and record events in your word. But God, you moved in the hearts and the minds of the authors of Scripture to have them record specific details about specific people at specific times in history. Lord, I pray that by your grace and your mercy, our affections for you would be stoked this morning. God, that we would remember our own journey, where it was when you found us, how we came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, who was involved in that, who nurtured us in the faith early on. God, how it was that you made your truth known to us. And God, we would be reminded that we are redeemed to be ambassadors and envoys back into those same spaces for the glory of your name and the good of those who have not yet come to know you as their Lord and as their Savior. Speak to us this morning, Father, from your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to find that God pursues a number of different kinds of people. And the first we see right here is that God pursues the religious. God pursues the religious. Now, there's a difference between being religious and being a Christian. There's a difference between being religious and being a Christian. Luke, Luke is including himself here in the language when he says, uh, we went, and he, he uses we and us. So they're here in Philippi, and on the Sabbath, they decide to go outside the city where they've heard is a place of worship by a river. There's river runs out there. There's creeks uh, that split off from that somewhere just outside the city. They're going out to find people who are already worshiping to, to the best of their ability the God of the Jews. A couple of quotes that I ran across this week while, while working on these texts that I just want to share with you this morning. They won't be up on the screen. They are in the app. They are in the app. So if you have the app, you don't have to take pictures of the screen if you don't want to. The first is by uh, Henry Martin. Henry Martin was a, uh, an 18th century Anglican missionary to India and Persia or modern-day Iran. And he said this, The Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of missions. The nearer we get to him, the more intensely missional we become. The nearer we get to him, the more intensely missional we become. That doesn't necessarily mean that everyone goes overseas or goes somewhere else, but it means the more intensely serious and focused we get about loving our neighbors well, that we might share the gospel with them. Loving friends and family and coworker and classmates in a way that demonstrates the gospel to them, that we might actually share the gospel with them, invite them to be a part of God's people and see what's going on. Alexander McLaren, who was an 18th century Scottish Baptist preacher, said the gospel is not speculation, but fact. It is truth because it is the record of a person who is truth. This is what we see unfolding in Acts. 
And you'll see again and again that, that Paul persuades people, that Paul would go to those who knew some of the Old Testament, many of them knew a lot of the Old Testament, and he would reason and argue with them, debate them out of the Scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the King. So we find this group of women here, and they're huddled, they're praying, they're doing their Sunday school devotional, they're doing everything they know. They're good women, they're, they're ethical but they don't yet know Christ. Can I just be very honest and say, I think this is the largest group of lost people in the Bible Belt in the South fit into this category. Fairly moral, fairly ethical, fairly religious. Maybe, maybe CME Christians, right? Christmas, Mother's Day, and Easter. They're going to hit the church. They identify as Christian. They identify as a voting block as evangelical, even though they don't know theologically what that means. They would be uh, somewhat offended by any insinuation that they're not Christian, but they're simply not. Their lives bear none of the fruit that our Lord says lives will bear among the people who know him. Jesus hasn't interrupted their life in a way that he's become central so that all of their faith and all of their belief and all of their trust and their values and their ethics and their world vision and their relationships and their money are all centered around the person and work and word of Jesus Christ. And probably some of you were this when Jesus came to you. Some of you, like you don't have a, a sort of tawdry, dark testimony to share. And some of you, I know, like you even feel, you're like, man, I wish I had a powerful one, right? Like Johnny, Johnny was so jacked up before Jesus. And he shares this story, people start repenting before he's done. I'm like, you know, I don't know, I was baptized at eight, don't really remember what happened. I just know I, I, I've always believed Jesus was who he says he is. Well, don't feel bad about that. Sinful brokenness and baggage is not pleasant to carry around. Now, God redeems that, he transforms us. But some of you are right here where this woman Lydia is. Now, let's talk about Lydia for a minute. And, and those of you who are church folk and have been around for quite a while, you'll know some things about Lydia. Lydia is wealthy. She's prominent. She's influential. She is the, the head of her household. She's either uh, divorced or widowed or, or not married or whatever the case is. But she's doing well. Philippi, where they are, was a, a prominent Roman city. Thyatira, where she also does business as a dealer of purple cloth and linen. She dressed well. She sold clothes to wealthy people who also dressed well. I, I don't get that, obviously. I don't put a ton of time uh, into picking out my wardrobe, sometimes much to Sharon's chagrin. Sometimes we'll get home on Sunday and she'll say, did you wear that shirt last week? And I'll say, I don't know, Maybe. Uh, she's got me so self-conscious about it right now that I need like Sunday date tags that I could put on shirts so I knew, know which black one I wore on which Sunday. They say black is slimming. I've seen myself on video. It's not slimming enough, all right? But this, this was Lydia. She had a home in Thyatira, a home uh, in Philippi. She's doing well, and she's religious. She's there with other women. They're praying. They're worshiping God as they know him. And then verse 14 says this astounding thing, that the Lord opened her heart to respond 
to Paul's message. If you want to know the secret, uh, if I could use that phrase, you want to know the, the key to men and women responding to the gospel, it is that the Lord opens our hearts. There is no yearning, no understanding in a broken, sinful heart that is dead before God and blinded to the truth of God without the Lord opening it. Just uh, as a quick reference to that, let's look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The Apostle Paul gets right at this reality when he says, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. And listen to this, and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Now, this is a difficult thing here, right? You've got people sitting here, you've got friends and family that don't know Jesus and they're hearing the message of Jesus And Paul says, not only do they not understand it and think it's foolishness, they can't understand it because they don't have the Spirit and it's spiritually discerned. So how is it that men and women come to faith? This is how they come to faith. The Lord has to open hearts. Darabach, a commentator on Luke and Acts, says this, that God creates the initiative to faith from within. God creates the initiative to faith from within. It's a powerful statement. And this is what happens here. Religious, yes. Ethical, moral, yes. Gathering already in some kind of religious activity consistently, yes. And yet, still lost. And yet, still unable to call Jesus Lord and Savior. Paul shows up and preaches, and the Lord opens Lydia's heart. Verse 15 when she and the members of her household were baptized. Now, this does not mean that because the Lord opened Lydia's heart, her household then was saved on her account. The idea is here is that God opened Lydia's heart and God opened the hearts of the members of her household, which you, uh, many of you know in this world would have been more than just immediate family, right? It would have been extended family. It would have been slaves, workers, servants, When they were baptized, she invited us to her home, Luke writes. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Now, you and I, we can barely scratch the surface of what a significant thing this is and why she says, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. She's asking a group of Jewish men, primarily, Obviously, Luke isn't a Jew, and he's including himself here. But a group of Jewish men to come stay at her house as a prominent, influential, wealthy woman in that day. And a Gentile. Lydia's the first convert in Europe. The very first human being ever to come to faith in Jesus Christ that we have a record of on the continent of Europe is Lydia. And she says, if you consider me a believer in the Lord. What she's saying is, if you consider me to be in the family now, for us to be family, come stay at my house. And we know from Acts and from other epistles in the New Testament that the church uh, comes to be centered at the home of Lydia in Philippi. So the Philippian church 
that Paul writes to later that is so influential in Paul's life that supports him so much financially and prayerfully and is known by their joy is centered in and around Lydia's salvation experience and her home. And Luke says, she persuaded us. Religion is a poor substitute for saving faith because you're never religious enough. You ever had anyone in your life that you were just never good enough for? No matter what you did, it just was never enough. There's a certain misery that comes to being religious, comes to uh, attempting to please God through my work, through my behavior. But God pursues the religious. Let's move on, though, and we're going to see that God pursues the indifferent as well. God pursues the indifferent as well. Look at verse 16. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future, literally a spirit of divination. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. Now, there's no indication here that this was a trick. It may have been. But what the text tells us is that she was inhabited by a spirit through which she predicted the future. I was thinking of how helpful this would be at times. Like all of us, there's a certain yearning that we have, isn't it true, to know the future to some degree, even though that would probably not be good. I was thinking about that this week. My, my left thumb hurts all the time now down in here. I think I've texted it to death. Part of the first generation who will lose one of our thumbs because we've been texting so much from an early age. But I was thinking, man, I blow my knee out skiing. All my shirts are shrinking in ways I can't explain. And my thumb hurts all the time now. I have to use two hands to pick something up. There's no telling what a wreck I'll be in a decade. And so I was thinking about it this week. I was like, that's it. This is the end. It's over. There's just a downhill slide to my funeral now. And then I'll flip the other way. No way. I'm going to have surgery on my thumb next week. I want to get it fixed. I'm not really. But I was thinking it would be nice to have sort of a traveling show where you could go, hey, tell me what, where am I in 10 years? You know? And you just cross your fingers and hope, right? They don't look at you like you're a house that needs to be condemned. So we encounter this slave girl, verse 17. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. But she kept us up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed. I like this. This is honesty. Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Peter and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews. Don't miss uh, the racial component there of their accusation. And are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, 
They were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. All right, let's go back and let's look again at this slave girl. Often in the first century and around that time, young, attractive girls were pulled into slavery to work for men um, because it helped to have uh, visually attractive women who also could tell the future. And money just sort of poured in. And this is what's going on here. We find out that she's got a spirit that's indwelling her. No reason to doubt that. We know that we wrestle not just with flesh and, bu- uh, flesh and blood, but with spirits and principalities and things beyond what we can see and understand. And she starts following Paul and Silas and shouting, these, men's are ser- these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, at first you might think, this is not a bad thing. Maybe Paul got confused. Maybe God sent her as a gift to announce the truth of what they were doing, but that's not what's going on here. The Spirit is following, guiding her to follow, and mock them as they preach and proclaim the gospel. And Paul wants there to be no confusion between what is sorcery and a spirit of divination and evil and what is good, right, just, and true. He doesn't want any confusion that she is not with them. But when he speaks to her, he doesn't speak to her. He speaks to the Spirit and he commands it to be gone. He commands it to be gone and immediately it is. Now, I'll say up front, even though I said God pursues the indifferent, that there's nowhere in the text here that explicitly says this slave girl came to faith in Christ. But a number of commentators feel like that is likely, and I tend to agree for a couple of reasons. The other individual stories we have in Acts 16 are of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Second thing is, if you go back, you don't, don't do it now, but go back and look at Matthew 12 sometime, and Jesus has a word in there about how spirits work. How spirits that, that can indwell a human being and take over a human being and direct our, our words and our actions work. And once they are driven out, Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, that they sort of wander around homelessly looking for some vessel to inhabit. And when they can't find anywhere else to go, they come back into their host and find it nice, clean, and ready for them. And so they even bring some of their buddies And the host is worse off than they were before. And there's no no word in here that this happens to this young woman. Instead, her owners, how odd is that? The owners of this human being created in the image of God are annoyed because their cash flow is lessened. They're not concerned about her at all. They're aggravated that their revenue source has been cut off. And they bring Paul and Silas up on charges that are difficult really to understand because there's nothing they're doing here um, exactly that's illegal under Roman law except that the message they were preaching and what they did to this young woman ended up bringing financial harm to these men, to her owners. And so they could, uh, they could bring Paul and Silas before the magistrate for that and to say, look, this is not a, a harmless religion that the Roman Empire protects, but the Roman Empire explicitly forbade a religion or a cult that brought harm to others, including to their financial well-being. 
All of this to say also that there is no evidence that the girl herself, that the girl herself was uh, particularly interested in or resistant to the message that Paul and Silas had. She's just simply there. And some of you, this is where you were when God found you. You weren't pursuing him. You weren't in a place of prayer. You weren't doing your Sunday school devotional. You couldn't have cared less. And through an event or a person or a comment or a song, God somehow pricked your heart. And in time, the Lord, as he did with Lydia, opened your heart. And showed you not only your sinlessness before God and your guilt before him. But the beauty and the wonder of salvation available to you in and through Jesus Christ. Maybe that's your story. God pursues the religious. He pursues the indifferent. But he also pursues the hostile. God also pursues the hostile. Look at this. Let's pick this up in verse 25. And then I'll say a word about the, the jailer. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. This is interesting because just this morning, we sing these lyrics, I'll sing through the night, the battle belongs to you. And here are Paul and Silas singing through the night. And don't get, um, like, don't get too hung up on the fact that they're singing hymns. They weren't singing 17th and 18th century hymns. Uh, that we now have combined in a book we call a hymnal. Um, they were singing scriptural tunes from their day. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Probably wondering if they needed to be in the psych ward, right? You're in prison, these guys are praying and singing hymns. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. He thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, the command here is that he and his household are to believe, and that results in salvation. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. So a word about uh, jailers typically in Paul's day. These jailers in places like Philippi, which was a, a Roman provincial city, were most often retired Roman military men, soldiers, who had distinguished themselves on the battlefield and in their service to Rome as a kind of retirement gift. They're given these posts that were a pretty casual duty, paid to do that, and they were most often pretty hostile 
toward the prisoners they had. They were completely sold out to Rome, and if they had a prisoner, they assumed they deserved to be there, and they were going to handle them accordingly. They were going to handle them accordingly. And you remember from Paul's encounter with the risen Lord on the road to Damascus that to be hostile to Christ's people is to be hostile to who? Christ. Yeah, to be hostile to Christ's people is to be hostile to Christ himself and to the message of the gospel. So we have this jailer here. He's put them in the inner cell. He's put them in stocks. He's an uncomfortable things to have your legs strapped into. They're praying and singing hymns. And verse 26 tells us that suddenly there's such a violent earthquake, it shakes the building so bad that the doors fly open. Likely uh, the locks come off or break loose, the doors fly open. Um, all of a sudden these stocks, these chains that the men are in, come loose from the floors and the walls as it trembles. Now, don't be astounded by, by this, right? If the resurrection is true, this is small potatoes. And I will tell you, if you study the geography of this area, then and now, earthquakes are fairly common here. It's like when we lived in Southern California. They just came and went from time to time, usually minor. But you know, across history, sometimes there are major ones. The fact that there's an earthquake is not miraculous and doesn't point too much to the work of God, the timing of it does. The timing of it does. This is God's world. And the gospel is his movement. And his children belong to him. And he's not having them. If he wanted to have a poor experience in the first century, just imprison some of the apostles. Because God's not having his people in prison that are spreading the gospel at this time. Not for very long. Now, look at verse 27 and 28. I love this. The jailer wakes up and he sees the prison doors open. And if you've ever been asleep during an earthquake, you doggone right you wake up. You startle awake, jump awake. He draws his sword and is about to kill himself. If you remember earlier in Acts when Peter is busted out by an angel, the guards that were supposed to be watching Peter are brought before their superiors, questioned, and then executed. This was common practice. You lost a prisoner, you let someone escape, you paid with your life. The jailer decides he's going to go ahead and take care of business. Now, part of this also may stem from the fact that he realized something much larger is going on than he understood. Maybe Paul and Silas really are who they claim to be. Maybe they're not common, normal prisoners. And he'd been a part of them being flogged, mistreated, and imprisoned. And Paul shouts in verse 28, don't harm yourself, we're all here. Now, i got to say this, this is where Paul and I part ways. Because if I'm a human being, I'm saying, how good is God? He's busted us out and he's about to handle the jailer on his own as well. That from my human mind is what I'd be thinking, thank you Lord, a double blessing. But grace invades a human heart and mind in such a way that men and women are seen as they are, as image bearers of the one who created them. And this is the way Paul sees this jailer. And he says, no, no, no. Even into your world comes the message and the grace of the God who pursues all kinds of people. There's a reason that phrase is in our mission statement here, that we exist 
to glorify God by helping all kinds of people find and follow Jesus through gospel-centered ministry. We're seeing this playing out in the book of Acts right now. The jailer calls for lights, he rushes in, he falls down trembling in a posture of respect before Paul and Silas and says, what do I have to do to be saved? There's, there's a sense of his awareness of his guilt before them and possibly before their God. And Paul doesn't say, well, you're nastier than we were when we came to faith. So here's what you have to do. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And we talked last week, or maybe the week before, about how this is not just a cognitive recognition. This is a, a whole body, whole mind, whole heart understanding that Jesus is who he says he is. That he's not just right about heaven and hell, but he's right about everything. And he alone is due all our worship and affection. What's amazing is, is this jailer has the same response that Lydia does. He invites them in. He cleans their wounds. It's interesting because he cleans their physical wounds, and their message leads to his belief in Jesus, which cleans his spiritual wounds. There's a double cleansing going on here that Luke wants us to be aware of. And then verse 34, the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And he was filled with joy. Filled with joy again and again and again. We see that joy characterizes the true people of God. That joy characterizes those that know they've been saved by God, even though they don't deserve it. And it's pretty wild here. This Gentile jeweler, uh, jailer, jeweler, Gentile jeweler, this Gentile jailer invites Paul and Silas and the crew in sets a meal before them, and they eat. And we just miss how significant and powerful this is. But we know if you read 1 Corinthians 10 that Paul wasn't too concerned about food issues anymore. He knew he was free in Christ. So whatever was set before him, he ate with glad thanksgiving and joy. And Jews and Gentiles dined. So far, we've seen the pursuit of God come to a businesswoman, a slave girl, and a Gentile jailer. And if you remember the three categories of people that first century Jewish men, and not just first century, um, Jewish men had such a contempt for, it was women, slaves, and Gentiles. And here is the heart of God extending to all of them in one chapter of Scripture, saying, no one owns my gospel. No one has sort of a corner on my love and my favor and my pursuit. I am after all kinds of people for the glory of my name and the good of those who come to know me. He pursues the religious. He pursues the indifferent. He pursues the hostile. Maybe some of you were hostile. You weren't just indifferent about Christianity. You were hostile and angry when Jesus came to you. You didn't like Christians, you didn't like the church, you didn't trust the Bible, and you didn't much like anyone else either. And into the hardness of your heart came the soft power of the gospel, and God saved you. Maybe that's your story. There's one final category we'll see this morning. God pursues the esteemed as well. God pursues the esteemed 
as well. Look at chapter 17, verse 2. As was his custom, Paul is in Thessalonica now. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This is their issue, right? Who wants a weak king? Who wants a crucified Messiah? This can't be how it's done. And Paul's saying this was the plan all along. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded. Some of the Jews were, persu- were, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks or Gentiles and quite a few prominent women. Quite a few prominent women. Now, look at, skip down to verse 10. He's in Thessalonica, now he's in Berea. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character, I like that, than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. The idea here is that the Jews in Berea were simply at this time more serious, more committed, more passionate about the faith they proclaimed than were the ones in Thessalonica. Verse 12, as a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. What, what I love here in, in the power of the gospel exploding is we see it's not just esteemed people that God pursues. We see here, by way of illustration, it's esteemed women that the gospel comes to empower and God opens their hearts. Women who were influencers, who were leaders, who were thinkers, who were doers, who were Mustangs, if you will, in Thessalonica and in Berea. (laughs) I remember a staff meeting uh, not too long into my tenure here where we were talking about personality types and, and ministry and things like that. And I, I said, I would always, and this is not original to me, I don't know where I heard it, but I would always rather lead a team of Mustangs that I have to rein in than donkeys that I have to kick. And, and one staff member raised her hand and said, is there something in between? I don't know that I'm a Mustang, but I don't want to be a donkey. Um, and I said, no, there's nothing in between. So <laughs> you're a Mustang or you're a donkey. But we had fun with that. These are leading women, influential women. Now, it is ridiculous to suppose that upon coming to faith in Christ, all of a sudden, they become subservient in the local church to men coming to faith in Christ. God is, is, is not concerned. The primary question of the gospel is not who's bossing who. That's crazy. And I think sometimes you and I will move past the, the, the gender issue here just to the fact that they were esteemed and prominent people. I think sometimes you and I, we look at people and we really do believe that the esteemed people, they just have it together, right? They're educated in the best places. They make good money. Everyone likes them. They're beautiful. And that's not true. I mean, they may be beautiful and they may have a great education, but they do not have everything together. And before God, they're impoverished beggars, the same as everyone else is. Sinful, hurting, busted, broken up. 
in need of a redeemer. And God loves them just as, he, just as much as he loves the slave girl. He loves the esteemed who are lost in all of their influence and prominence and esteem. I remember watching a, a, an interview, a short section of an interview with Lindsey Vaughn, who's an American skier, Olympian, the most decorated uh, American Olympian in history. Um, unbelievable skier, prominent woman, beautiful. You'd think she has this all together. And she wrote a book talking about her, her struggle, her struggle to, to come to accept and love herself. And the, and the deep desire that she had in her brokenness and insecurity to find someone who would just love her. And you would never look at Lindsey Vaughn winning all those medals and skiing and talking and think, here's someone who's deeply broken, insecure, and flawed. But, but isn't that the human story? Isn't that the human story? We all are. Scripture says we've all sinned. We've all sinned. I hope in five or six years we're a lot grittier church, right? We've got people coming in who are being freed from addictions. We're having witches saved. We've got all kinds of things going on. By the power of the gospel for the glory of God and the good of our community. Because we've all sinned. Psalm 51, David says, Surely I was sinful from birth. Sinful even in, almost in my mother's womb. I was conceived. In this human disease of sin. As the band makes their way up here and prepares to, to lead us as we respond and reflect and worship and communion. Um, I see this on display all the time at my house. Obviously in my own life. And then we have twins. We have twins that are almost four. And it's so, it's so funny. Zane is the older brother, but he's smaller than Zeke. But Zane is committed to having the best of all things at all times between the two of them. If they're made drinks and Zane thinks Zeke's is fuller, he happily trades Zeke's and gives him the less full one, which Zeke just accepts with glad tidings. If Zane drops his food on the floor, he will happily clean it up and give it to Zeke. And take Zeke's plate over and over and over and over. He will look at their clothes. If one has a little stain on it, he will gladly give those to Zeke so that he can wear the best. It is sin on display without apology at that age, without any attempt to cover it up. It's that human desire to have and to want the best at the expense of Whoever else, it doesn't really matter. It's cute right now, but adults like that are unbelievably destructive. And we learn to cover it up. But you know what? God comes to us. Maybe this was your story, right? Maybe your life had gone pretty well. Maybe your bank account was always full. You drove nice cars. You had a great spouse. And yet you were still empty. And God came to you. God is always pursuing all kinds of people. My hope and my prayer this morning is that you've seen or felt yourself somewhere in this and said that's me, and that you, by God's grace and Spirit, will remember that you've been saved out of these places in order to go back into them and say, I was just like you. I was right where you were. And here's what God did for me 
The closer you get to Jesus, the more intensely missional you become. Let's stand and pray. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. Thank you.